0: Today, we'll be discussing the television documentary, We Need to Talk About Cosby, and we'll be discussing drugs such as Spanish Fly, Rohypnol, and GHB. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs.
1: Not a real doctor.
0: Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then, Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing the recent TV documentary series from W. Kamau Bell, entitled We Need to Talk About Cosby. And we'll be discussing various drugs that have been used in the past in sexual assaults, namely Spanish Fly, Rohypnol, GHB, and Quaaludes. And of course, we should just mention right at the top, Ali, that there is a content warning in this episode. We will be talking about sexual assault in this episode. Ali, maybe we should just get into this because, you know, we need to talk about Cosby.
1: We do. We all do. It's a great series. I don't know what you felt about it. I think we'll come back to the series itself closer to the end of the show today. But I, I did want to mention W. Kamau Bell mm-hmm. recently in my in my comedy class. My I, I teach a class this semester on diversity in stand up comedy, and W. Kamau Bell was one of our case studies. I find his comedy to be um, very, very thoughtful and very, very interesting. And, and not only that, but, you know, as far as a diversity class goes, he was a guy who long time ago had this famous quote about, he goes, you know, people always ask me, why is your comedy always about race and racism and identity? And he's like, well, I'm a six foot four black man. I didn't make it about race. You made it about race. Everywhere I go, it just so happens to be about race. So if you want to make jokes about, I don't know, he mentioned some banal thing like soup or your socks, then you go ahead. But my comedy is going to be about what I know through the, you know, your lens and through my lens, which is about race. So he's very much focused on things that Appeal to him through his own, you know, identity and through race and through being a black man. And uh, one of the things that he recently had on uh, on CNN until a couple of years ago, maybe, was um, the United Shades of America. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Famously, his first episode was him going to visit the Ku Klux Klan. So it's, uh, it's a host, namely, black man, W. Kamau Bell, going to places that... He, some people would say, probably shouldn't go to for his own, uh, you know, safety. But this is also why I like him. You know, he's committed to compelling programming and com- compelling stories. And it was—I uh, didn't watch the second season. The first season was fantastic. Really liked uh, almost everything I saw there.
0: No, well, in fact, uh, it's actually been on for—it's been seven seasons. Ah, Jesus! He does about five or six episodes a season. That's why.
1: Okay, okay, because I was, like, and, and I so they're think-
0: short. Yeah, yeah. The short seasons. He has another one coming up in 2022. But, you know, you know, I haven't seen it, and that's probably my big blind spot for me. So you know a lot about him, Kamal Bell. So, you know, and and you've kind of touched on this, but in terms of his past, you know, history, and then why he felt compelled to make this documentary, can you speak to that?
1: I think, you know, as as he says, Bill Cosby wasn't just... Black America's dad. Bill Cosby was America's dad. You know, there's there's a, a bunch of statistics that come out. You know, the, the Big Bang Theory, one of the most popular shows in recent history, will get about, I don't know what it is, 25 million people watching. I think America. for the
0: finale or something like that. Yeah.
1: Right. And and the most watched Cosby show was 65 million people. At the time, that was a quarter of the United States. So one quarter of a country watching a show, I mean, that's really, really something. So he talks about uh, Cosby, not only Cosby's impact on entertainment, but as a black person looking up to somebody as a second father, as a role model, as a guide, as a hero, as a mentor, as the reason he got into comedy, and then the emotions and and, and that cognitive dissonance that he went through and that so many people gone through learning what Cosby's legacy or other legacy, I I guess, was all about was, was very difficult. And I think for him, it was, let's get these stories out. And, and, you know, there's a great New York times article about the way that this particular documentary is positioned It's very, very interesting. The way he did it, he doesn't tell you how you should think about it, but he does say that, you know, it's not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde were always the same person. So, you know, the awful, horrific stuff that Cosby did is part and parcel with who Bill Cosby is, but so is the amazing thing that he did. And so this documentary also goes back and and really looks at some of the great things that Cosby did in his career. And so that cognitive dissonance is there for like the entire series, really.
0: So it's a four episode series. It's on Showtime in the U S it's on Crave in Canada. You and I have both watched every episode. You're right. It's very interesting because it tells the truth about both sides of this person. And, you know, it's interesting. It talks about his legacy and it kind of goes by kind of 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, 90s and how his legacy went. So it, it starts with him being, you know, started with stand up and his, he's one of the few black comedians who was invited on talk shows and things like
1: that. Really, after Dick Gregory, it was him, right, Ali? He was a guest host for Johnny Carson. People may not know or remember that, but, you know, it's a big deal to have a black man come in and host, right? Johnny Carson would have Joan Rivers. He would have, you know, I, I think Gary Shandling might have, he had a few, a collection, but to have a black man being the host, you know, this trusted voice at the helm of the most trusted show, uh, a comedy show, late night show in America. It was a very, very big deal. Everything that Cosby did, it spoke to how much he was this trusted, venerated figure.
0: And even before that, in the 60s, he was on I Spy. I never really watched I Spy, Same but I here, heard about yeah. it. I heard about it from my dad, who who liked I Spy a lot. I didn't realize it was a dramatic series. I thought because Cosby was in it, it was a comedic series.
1: Yeah, uh, and I was mixing done. it up with Spy versus Spy, which was quite funny, if not violent. I, yeah, love, I, the spy, I, versus, I so, love
0: the spy versus. I love the spy versus uh, comics. Also had a black spy and a white spy, but anyway, that's a bit of a digression. So sure is. But I spy. He was a leading man, and it was a drama. And it was very successful, and he was he wasn't a subordinate like uh, Cato and the Green Hornet, right? Like everybody liked Cato because it was Bruce Lee, but he was kind of the subordinate. These two were equals, you know. He was a martial artist and all this stuff, and then. It was a very important show because it basically legitimized black stunt performers in Hollywood. Essentially, prior to this, which is crazy to believe that this was the case, even in movies like Live and Let Die, the James Bond movie, when they had a black person and they needed a stunt worker, they just painted literally a white person black. Didn't darken their skin, like brownish, which is actually what people's color of their skin is. No, they painted them black. And basically, Cosby said no.
1: Yeah, he came in and saw somebody getting painted. That somebody was his own stunt double for a scene, and he said, "I'm not going to work on this show if that's happening." There are black stuntmen, obviously, in this industry. You get them here, and find me, a or I'm off the show.
0: And, and really, it, it started black black stunt work in Hollywood. What was his insistence on that? And and if you listen to to the history of black stunt work, that they say this was a pivotal moment. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, he, as time went on, became more and more involved with civil rights. And it was a big, it was a big passion of his. And they talk about this in the show as time goes on, he kind of moves into the education aspect, which is how you and I, who kind of grew up in the 70s and 80s, remember him, right? I remember, I mean, my first exposure to Bill Cosby was on The Electric Company. That's how I know who he yeah, is. Yeah, yeah sure, And sure, then sure. picture pages he was on. And then I didn't even realize that it was Bill Cosby who was on Fat Albert, honestly. What? I only realized that in hindsight. What are hindsight. you talking about? So when, I was, so when I was a kid, I used to watch Fat Albert at the time, and I knew there was a guy who narrated the beginning and the End of the episodes, whether yeah, kind of and also reviewing. did a lot of the voices. He, he did, did almost all the voices, yeah. and I didn't realize probably till I started watching the Cosby Show that oh, that was Bill Cosby because I mean I watch Fat Albert all the time. I love that show. I ne- I just never figured it out and that him and the guy on Electric Company that that I figured that was the same person, but I didn't really realize that was Bill Cosby till later.
1: Well, welcome to everybody else's world. Good for you. Yeah,
0: well, there you go. And then as you know, time went on, he. Uh, he was one of the big people who really drove the support of historically black colleges in the U.S. Uh, with huge donations to these schools. Huge sweatshirts also, right? <laughs> That's true. Remember That's when true. he was
1: walking around the uh, Huxtable home, he would have like some, you know, Temple or Brown or Howard. He would have, I, if, in my memory, he was always wearing some sweatshirt of some university
0: Exactly, exactly. And so, well, then let's let's talk about The Cosby Show. I mean, it's so influential in terms of, of what it means. And, and I think what it means to everybody in general, and then especially to Black America. And so people talk about this. He would have these uh, historically Black college sweatshirts on. Just no, nobody mentions anything. He just wears them. He'll have art by Black artists up in his... Uh, house. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not, nobody's called attention to those things. It's just in each room basically or in the hallway, there's be one of these pictures. That's it. Yeah, And it's kind of elevating everyone. And if you read, well, we're linked to a lot of articles by a lot of uh, black writers who talk about this. And it's mentioned many, many times in the documentary, how important this was, because as you said, he wasn't just America's dad. He he wasn't just black America's dad. He was America's dad. But the fact that he was able to represent the black experience at this level on the most popular show on television, it really spoke to a lot of black
1: Americans at the time. Just to add to that, there's a uh, New York Times opinion piece. Tressie McMillan-Cottom was actually asked to be on uh, the documentary, and she does appear in this documentary. And her piece is called, We Weren't Wrong to Love the Cosby Show. And it's a great read. But, you know, just to add on what you were saying, she was talking about how, you know, that joke, that that famous joke that, which is also weird, right? Asif, like, normally we'd be doing this the way we covered Curb Your Enthusiasm or Seinfeld. Let's talk about our favorite episode. Mm-hmm. And of course we have episodes, but it's, it's like uh, deeply troubling to go talk about our favorites and celebrate this man knowing what he did. But anyway, uh, just, you know, what Tressie talks about is, That particular joke that many of us would know where he says, you know, I I brought you into this world and I'll take you out. He says to his son, Theo, when Theo says, "I I want you to just accept me for who I am. That kind of joke or the guest appearance by Dizzy Gillespie. That was, you know, guys like you and I, white people, you know, South South Asian background, immigrant, we're not going to fully appreciate what that is. But she was saying that that was coded language that millions of black American families understood. It said to us, do not let these degrees and money fool you. We come by way of Southern roots and black social institutions. We see you. So when you read about that also, you know, as like the art you were talking about on the walls, these things are like... They're covering this incredible breadth of the black experience, right? Norma, you know, there there was, there were definitely haters of the Cosby show where it was like, oh yeah, uh, you're trying to go in the opposite direction. This is not how most black people live. Most black people are struggling and you're acting like, you know, this. and that wasn't at all what he was doing. I think he was trying to cover a wide array of, 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 of black experiences, like, like so many communities desperate to prove that we are not a monolith, right? We have other things. And
0: yeah, he was trying to be aspirational probably. I mean, he was extremely successful and, and terribly rich even before the Cosby show and just terribly became rich. r- r- richer afterwards, but it was aspirational. You know, he, of him as a doctor, his wife's a lawyer, though, as, as a point out in some reviews. She was a lawyer and also a stay-at-home mom, basically, like, and they have five kids. They live in this brownstone in New York. And really, there's a quote from the documentary, where this college professor, Jelani Cobb, who's extremely well-spoken. They say, I don't think it's overstating it. Cosby really almost single-handedly expands the vista of what people think Black people can be in American society, which is an extremely powerful statement. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean, with all this in mind, I think uh, it may be valuable to talk about, you know, how it all went, uh, how it all went sideways for Bill Cosby, because that in itself is a very interesting story as well, because women were coming out and gaining some momentum. You know, a few, a few women came out and said, I was drugged and raped by Bill Cosby. And that gave some, some strength And confidence to other women who were going to keep that, you know, story to themselves, but they were not being recognized. And I think we were at like a, I think we had maybe a dozen in the neighborhood of a dozen women who had come out in the news to say this about Bill Cosby. And it wasn't getting any traction. They were derided. They were called uh, gold diggers. They were uh, completely like, you know, overall ignored by the media. And I, I, I don't feel comfortable saying that because some media outlets were probably taking a huge risk by having these women as guests. Uh, but overall, they were, I would say they were ignored by the general public. I think that's a better way to say it than, than the media. Because some, some parts of the media were doing their best to try to get the story out. Hannibal Burris who I had actually met in 2012 in, in Toronto. I'd spent a full night with him. My friend Fais- Faisal Butt and myself spent a night with him. Got to know him a little bit, talked to him about just sort of life and his work. And, you know, he had, had done writing on Saturday Night Live. And he always struck me as a guy who is pretty grounded, like for sure, you know, hungry for success and very talented, but pretty grounded. And when I watched that set he did, he did this, it's this, this you know, seminal set where he talks about Bill Cosby, being a rapist. And you can sense the unease in the audience. The audience is almost like a microcosm for America at large. People are like, whoa, whoa, this guy's going too far. Other people are like awkwardly laughing. Other people are silent. And he goes, hey man, look it up. Google Bill Cosby rape. I'm sad to tell you that it has more hits than my own name. My own career is doing worse than this horrible thing that this man's done. I remember asking, Eric Andre a, a friend of Hannibal's and I know Eric Andre a little bit too from performing for him a few times. And I remember in 2015 meeting Eric Andre and they had had a, Eric Andre had the Eric Andre show and Hannibal Burris was his sidekick. And I was like, Eric, did Hannibal have to go into hiding or anything after that? And he said, yeah, man, things got really bad for, for Hannibal for a little while there. Right? So even the guy who was like, hey, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what's out there. Even that guy had death threats on his life. Just to illustrate what kind of reaction there was around anybody saying anything negative about Cosby. And that speaks to him being everybody's dad and this wonderful person who did so much good in the world. And that's why we do need to talk about Cosby. And also a very interesting part of this documentary is... These clips of him talking about a variety of things that, you know, now knowing what we know, you go, oh God, you know, when he talks to, I think it's Larry King about Spanish fly, he is lit up. His eyes are wide and he's grinning this crazy grin. And it's not, even back then we should have been like, Hey man, you're a bit too excited about Spanish fly. What's happening here?
0: yeah, he has a whole comedy routine about Spanish Fly mm-hmm. back you know, in one of his early comedy albums. and And then he has this w- joke, which just I mean, it was on the Cosby show, and he talks about he has this barbecue sauce that he can make, which is like an aphrodisiac.
1: His daughters and their husbands or boyfriends are all very romantic in the backyard. They're sort of kissing and snuggling in the backyard. There's three couples, young couples, who are all very amorous. And that's when he, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, that's the background. And his wife, you know, Claire Huxtable is like, what has happened to everybody? And that's when he does that joke. I'll I'll let you continue what you were saying.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, and then of course, one of Rudy's little friends, whose name I'm forgetting from the show, is like licking his fingers with the barbecue sauce, like, this is delicious, can I have some more? And of course, like, Cliff takes it away and gets angry at him for that. So, when you look at this in hindsight, you're like, he dropped these hints all the time, and then nobody was any the wiser.
1: Yeah, you know who was probably uh, pretty bothered by that was the people on set who knew exactly what he was doing on a regular basis. And then having to be in a writing room, seeing that sketch develop, or that that part of the show, and then you know, yeah, I mean, there's they, a network they, of people who have uh, not come out who have helped Cosby to be the person. Yeah, right? you're not getting Spanish fly. He doesn't have a Spanish fly uh, garden in his backyard. People are getting him drugs wherever he goes, wherever he travels. People are like, you know. Uh, what do you want to call that? The gatekeepers so that his quote unquote awful business can be conducted the way he needs it to be. So his doors never knocked on at certain times, his doors never opened at certain times. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there's probably people who walked in and saw unconscious women.
0: I'm sure like there, there were like, cause again, in the, in the documentary, they only interviewed the people who agreed to be interviewed and the people who were probably really complicit in this, probably declined to be interviewed and but they they talk about how every taping of the cosby show there would be 20 to 30 models sitting in one section of the audience yeah they called it the parade they called yeah it and the then parade with the he would invite marching. some of them in, in, back to his room and anyway there, there's there and then there's some horrible kind of um first person accounts from a lot of the victims in
1: the uh in, in the documentary as well i got the feeling Based on this documentary and based on things I've heard over the years, this is a personal opinion of mine, but I feel like if 68 women came forward, it would be upwards of 500 women that would have been drugged and raped by Bill Cosby.
0: Yeah, Kamau Bell talks about this. Like he only interviewed the people who came forward and even all the people who came forward weren't agreeable to be interviewed for the documentary. Right. So how many women are out there who just don't want to say anything for kind of obvious reasons in terms of the, uh, the, the, the vitriol that's been... Uh, directed towards these women who did speak out
1: well why don't we talk about you know mentioning this you know loosely veiled barbecue sauce and in the reaction to it and and the spanish slide why don't we talk about the medical components here of uh of this 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 discussion and what these various drugs are these date rape drugs and these these Whatever you want to call it, products that these predators uh, use that they have in their tool belt.
0: Okay, so why don't we transition to, to that and then we'll come back and kind of give our thoughts on the documentary as a whole.
1: Okay. There are a few things that I remember from my youth. I think there was the bubble gum. And there was the comic books. And when you turn around the comic books, you could buy seahorses. I don't know if you remember the seahorses. Sea monkeys, dude. Sea Sea monkeys. monkeys. Sorry. Of course, I had sea monkeys. Okay. So, yeah, there's the sea monkeys, a couple of other little things that came in. And one of them was Spanish fly. Spanish fly was something that was talked about. And we knew it was like something to do with sex. Right? Because at the age that I was reading about it, I couldn't fully understand what this was, but it was it was something illicit. Exactly. So this is the back page of the comic book. It was usually black and white, a bunch of rectangles
0: with little ads in them. So one of them was for sea monkeys. Sea monkeys, by the way, are brine shrimp. They don't look anything like the humanoid sea monkeys that I thought I was getting. We're
1: already ruining people's uh, youth by talking about Bill Cosby. You don't also have to ruin their sea monkey dreams. Oh, You don't have to go be a huge nerd and tell what sea monkeys actually are. Let that one stay. Let's focus on what we're... I think it's
0: impressive my parents actually bought me those. Yeah, the back of the comic, they'd also have the whoopee cushion, they'd have that gum that you like offer the gum and it's like a mousetrap and it's like snaps, yeah, yeah or, or or joy buzzer, yeah. And this was one of the things. So, so let's talk a bit about Spanish fly. It's it's a very interesting article. It's a great article actually from McGill University. Well, one of their PhD, uh, one of their PhDs there kind of goes over what it is all about. So, it's actually the name for the extract of a blister beetle. The beetles aren't flies. They're not Spanish. So it, they uh, have this extract that contains something called cantharidin. This chemical is synthesized by the male beetle, and it's given as a nuptial gift to the female during copulation.
1: A nuptial gift.
0: Yes, and pr- it protects the eggs. So if a predator comes around and bites into a blister beetle egg, it, it has this horrible stinging reaction. and Because this cantharidin causes very painful blisters. But if you ingest it uh, as a human, especially in smaller doses, it can cause a burning sensation in the urinary tract that can provoke an erection. So that's kind of how it, I don't know how it became called Spanish or anything like that.
1: Okay, so it doesn't cause an erection. It causes a burning in the urinary tract that may cause an erection. Is that what we're saying?
0: Yes, correct.
1: And what does it do for women? If anything.
0: N- nothing. Well, in fact, y- you know, a big proponent of the Spanish fly was actually the Marquis de Sade. That, uh person. Uh, we yes. all know about sadism. And so uh, he gave it to prostitutes and it it they basically developed searing abdominal pain because of the high doses he used. And he was basically poisoning these women. And uh, so much so that he was sentenced to death in absentia because he fled to Italy. I mean, it's, it's a real psychopathic behavior. And so it's funny. Uh, nowadays, if you buy this Cantharidin online in, in the Spanish fly. It probably doesn't contain that. It, it probably contains they think cayenne pepper and other kind of spicy ingredients to make, make give you that feeling without the whole, whole blister beetle uh, issue. But I've actually seen cantharidin used, if you can believe it. Have you ever heard of molluscum contagiosum?
1: No, contagios. You had me at contagios. I don't know. Uh, allergy to mollusks. <laughs>
0: It sounds like that. So these are basically like these little bumps that people get. They're almost like warts and they're caused by a virus. And you can kind of get them through skin contact and they can kind of spread all over your body. They go away with time, but they don't look very good. If you look it up, um, you'll you'll be a bit kind of put off by the appearance. So people don't like them and uh, and they co- occur commonly in kids. And so I know someone who their kid had this and then they were at a, uh, they had a couple of spots and then they went to like a, a day camp, uh, like a swimming day camp, but they used the same towel every day. So they would spread kind of the virus all over their body and they were covered with this molluscum contagiosum.
1: Is it spreadable to other people's bodies as well? Yes, yes. And it's not painful or anything like that.
0: But uh, so what you do is the dermatologists, you you will use this uh, extract from the blister beetle and you just put a little bit on some of the molluscum contagiosum, some of those little um, kind of areas that you have involved. You don't put on the whole body and that will cause them to dissolve and involute, but it also helps... All the ones on the rest of your body, the ones that you haven't treated either. I don't know why that works, but it totally did. And the person was and kind this of this is
1: dermato- dermatologically recommended. This yes. is not you didn't have to look at the back of a comic book for this. You <laughs> no, were exactly. This is something that's in in the pharmaceutical yeah, industry. So dermatologists use products. it, yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay. So that's
0: that's kind of the whole history of Spanish fly that Cosby was talking about.
1: All right, and then we we're going to talk about. Rohypnol. Rohypnol, if you correct me if I'm wrong, but these are what are also known as roofies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the, the quintessential date rape drug of the last whatever you, I mean, 10, 15 years, I guess, right? You, that's usually what you're talking
0: about. Yeah, I would say probably the 80s and upwards. So let's just back up a sec. So the number one drug used in in sexual assaults is alcohol. Okay, so we have to remember that. And and a lot of these drugs are used in combination with it. But if you look statistically, it's easily alcohol that's used the most. But the other drugs we're going to talk about, they act on GABA receptors in the brain. So GABA is a neurotransmitter, but it's what's called an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So when you act on an inhibitory neurotransmitter, you will increase the levels of, of GABA activation and Inhibit the nervous system. So, when you inhibit the nervous system, it's not like losing your inhibitions, that's not what we mean, but it, it decreases the activity of the central nervous system. So, I and mean, I'm simplifying this extremely, but all of these drugs act on GABA to do that. So that when you decrease the activity of the nervous system, that will cause sedation, drowsiness. You you know, you're you're powering down your nervous system, right? And that's that's what it causes. And of course, that's why in overdose situations these things can be fatal. So, Grohypnol is called flunitrazepam. They actually don't really use it in medicine this this, but it's in the family of benzodiazepines. So benzodiazepines are some things you've heard about, Valium, Mm-hmm. Uh, which is diazepam, or, or Ativan. I don't know if some people you might know take sure. an Ativan. So Valium
1: is a painkiller?
0: No, they're all benzodiazepines. So they're all- Which is anti-anxiety? Yeah. So it, Valium is used as an anti-anxiety medication. It shouldn't be for various reasons, uh, but, but it is. That was a traditional use for it. Uh, we talked about in a past episode, Valium was one of the medications initially made by Purdue Pharma. Hmm. who later went on to make OxyContin. So these are all in the same family of benzodiazepines. Act on the GABA receptor, cause increased inhibition in the brain, sedation, drowsiness. So you can imagine, I'm all nervous, you know, because I'm anxious. Okay, sedate that, right? Bring that down. That's why they're used. But of course, you know, There's a reason we don't use benzodiazepines or they shouldn't use them for long-term treatment of anxiety because they're addictive. But again, you need a a dose of Ativan because you're getting on a plane, you know, you're afraid of flying, take one of those. Okay.
1: Or when it was recommended to me, not recommended, but, um, you know, offered up as an option, which I didn't take after my vasectomy. Oh yeah, there you go. Yeah. I think uh, a lot of people get a little bit, uh, not after, sorry, not after. Why would it be after? I don't before, know. It was weird. Before. It was weird. Hey, who was that guy? Uh, no, the, uh, it was before, while you're in the waiting room, while you're, you know, um, nerves and anxiety are building up for many men. I think that's a time where they say we do, you know, you can actually take it. They take it if you want, yeah. And I didn't, in the end, only, you know, I'm not really a big a medicine guy anyway, but it was also because then you had to wait an extra hour before you could drive. Hey, you're like, I just need to get out of here. i want like, to get out of here, man. sit in a clinic with all these nervous men. So,
0: so getting back to rohypnol, so the problem with it is that, well, you know, is that it, it's small, it dissolves very easily into drinks, and doesn't affect the taste or color. So that's why it was able to be administered to people and used like this. And then you get sleepy, confused, you can often forget what happened, so you can see why it's used by these predators. So to prevent the misuse, actually, the manufacturer of rohypnol itself changed the pill to a look like a long kind of olive green tablet. And when it dissolved in light-colored drinks, it will dye the liquid blue. So then you know your drink has been tampered with. But there's also generic versions of Rohypnol which don't contain the blue dye. So uh, it's, it's not a perfect so sort of thing. So remind
1: me again, Rohipnol's actual use, where it does get used for something beneficial, is where? It clearly serves some purpose if the manufacturer is... Doing these, you know, safeguards and these things that cost them extra money to do.
0: Yeah, it can be used by that, but it's really not. So, for example, the U.S. it's not; a, it's an illegal drug, not allowed by the food, U.S. Uh, food and Drug Administration, uh, and so it, it kind of it's used kind of illegally. It is manufactured in some places. So like in in Australia, it's used for insomnia and in some other countries as well, in Japan as well, but really it doesn't have a lot of uses in in medicine.
1: Just thinking about the opioid documentary, Dope Sick, that we watched, you know, every every step costs them a lot of money. So the manufacturer, it would cost them money to like change the shape of it and Mm -hmm. make it a certain color and uh, put an additive in it that makes the drink change color. So- Clearly it's it's widely used enough.
0: Yeah, they're balancing the bad press with they want sales, right? And that's yeah. also why it's not allowed in America and it never will be. It will always be prohibited because the manufacturer's not going to spend the money to try and get roofies allowed uh, in America, right? It just doesn't make any sense. They have too bad of a name. But they're not going to stop making it because they do have sales in other countries.
1: All right, and then there was a couple of other drugs here that you mentioned, GHB,
0: yeah. So GHB, it's also known, I don't know any of these names, it's also known on the street as cherry meth or scoop or goop. And it, it kind of came to attention, you know, River Phoenix died in 1993. He was outside the Viper Room in LA. And the thought is he died from an overdose of GHB. That's never been proven, but it kind of stimulated, that's when GHB was kind of first starting to, to become notable. And it also acts on GABA receptors. So again, causes uh, this increased inhibition in the nervous system. And it was actually made in the 1960s to be like an anesthetic aid, you know, when you're having anesthesia for surgery. But it uh, causes sleep, it causes a reversible coma, but it it doesn't have an analgesic effect. So it doesn't take away pain, which is obviously one of the main things you wanna do during surgery. You don't wanna remember the surgery, but you don't wanna have pain occurring in your body uh, during or afterwards. And sometimes it would cause seizures as well. So they didn't really use it very much. And the the only reason we use it now is because it's actually used in uh, narcolepsy. So you know people who have these attacks of falling asleep. And uh, so that's one of the uses for it to help regulate sleep and narcolepsy. So, but it's very, you know, you have to be very specific in prescribing because it's it's uh, very limited in terms of prescribing because of its uh, abuse potential. So uh, there's lots of rules that you have to follow, at least in Canada, if you want to prescribe it. It's probably only used in about 0.2 to 4.4% of sexual assault, so uh, it, those ones that that involve drugs. But again, same thing, you can put it in a drink, it's tasteless, it's odorless, it's colorless uh, when you dissolve it in a drink. Mixing with alcohol can make the effects worse and it can onset quickly in like 15 to 30 minutes. It, again, it will cause sedation and essentially put you, all, especially in higher dose, into a reversible coma. Sometimes irreversible, of course, if you give too much. And then
1: finally, quaaludes. I, I must profess ignorance about quaaludes. I only know quaaludes from people's jokes about quaaludes. And it's always about like, you know, the take a chill pill you know, pop a Quaalude and relax, calm down. So I just somehow I always thought that was for either for anxiety or if it was a party drug to just like kind of mellow out, I suppose, you know, not too different from weed, but obviously.
0: Yeah, no, I would say it's more serious than that. But again, it, see, we're learning a lot of pharmacology. It acts the same way. It acts on these GABA receptors. So similar to GHB, similar to Rohypnol and... It increases the GABA activity, causes sedation, and causes relaxation, obviously, of your body. Again, you're depressing the nervous system. And it was prescribed initially for insomnia, uh, as we talked about before with the Rohypnol. So again, to help you fall asleep. And, and so it was kind of this, these downers that, that, you know, with the, the peak of drugs in the 60s and 70s, it was used a lot. You needed a prescription for it for insomnia, but it was obviously used for these other purposes. But again, Quaaludes, which was the brand name, uh, they got such a bad name for being associated with illegal and illicit use that they stopped manufacturing, and it wasn't worth prescribing, uh, making it anymore. And the not the generic name, but the, the actual chemical name is methaqualone, so that's how they came with quaaludes. It's actually one of the most commonly used recreational drugs in South Africa uh, currently, and it's but it's not really manufactured. So it's actually manufactured clandestinely, like illegally in India. And then... And then it gets sent to South Africa and also another place of India. It comes in a tablet, but you also often smoke it with uh, marijuana, and that's called white white pipe or white piping, I think. When you when you when you use it like this, so the reason why quaaludes are, are in this conversation is because Bill Cosby has admitted uh, in his civil suit, which we can talk about in a minute, to using quaaludes to to drug and uh, sexually assault women, and so even though we don't use them anymore. They they were used previously, uh, and he admitted to the uh, to the, to using these women.
1: All right. Well, let's get back to the documentary. In that case, I um, in the end, it was in the neighborhood of sixty women who had come forward, mm-hmm. and. You know, obviously none of them really knew how they were drugged, Mm -hmm. but they all had a similar experience of sort of uncontrollable, you know, dipping into uh, uh, unconsciousness uncontrollably. They had no control over their own senses and which is just, you know, it also speaks to, you know, the doses that he was reliably using. And, you know, sometimes he was pushing a couple of drinks on people. One, one person uh, stuck out and I'm I'm sorry that her name is escaping me, but she talked about, I guess, as a non drinker or whatever time of the day it was, uh, he put it in her cappuccino Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she said something, which, you know, this is when I, I fully turned because like so many people, I was like, what is this? How is this possible? And, you know, we all have this level of cognitive dissonance when it comes to this, thing when somebody who, you know, you're like, I can't be so stupid that I like this guy so much. And yet he is this type of person, you know, whereas why, why should Ali Hassan in Brossard, Quebec, know who Bill Cosby is behind closed doors? So it, it doesn't make any sense to feel that way, but you'd ne- you, you, you know, inevitably do uh, often, but Judd Apatow was on, uh, was on the WTF podcast, Mark Maron's podcast. He wasn't a guest. He just kind of like, came in as like, uh, hey, Judd's here. He wanted to talk about something. And the way Judd Apatow spoke about Bill Cosby, the absolute fury and the, Z, you know, the, the, the way he was, you just don't hear Judd Apatow talk like that. Very easygoing guy, very relaxed. The way he talked about it and the, what, the words he said, which was like, you think about this, Mark, you think about every single one of these women knew that something was wrong with them and their eyes were closing. And the last thing they saw as their eyes were closing were built, was Bill Cosby's face and they knew something horrific was going to happen to them in the next few minutes and they had no control over it. And when he painted that picture, I felt sick to my stomach and the way he described all of it was, was awful. And that was sort of the end of it for me. There was no more like wondering about Bill Cosby. It was like, oh yeah, the time for this wondering and like you know, personal investigations. Like, I wonder if maybe there's no maybes anymore. This is absolutely, you know, people are putting their careers and their lives on the line to come forward like this. They've all said over and over again, they don't want anything out of Bill Cosby. They just want this story to come uh, clean. And, and, you know, many people in the black community, there was another element about like, you're trying to take down another one of our great men. And that's also what makes it so difficult and also what makes us such an important Piece of work for 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 W Kamal Bell personally, but but for 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 all fans of entertainment and especially black fans of entertainment and of Bill Cosby, and I think yeah, it's um, I, I mean the
0: documentary is is so well done because it doesn't shy away from either of these aspects. It doesn't downplay the importance of. Bill Cosby in entertainment and especially with regards to black performers and civil rights and education, everything else he does, but it does not downplay uh, what he did to these women at all. Uh, and we hear lots of first person testimonials from a lot of these women. It's it, one of the complicated things about this documentary is the whole issue of uh, Andrew Conson's court case against uh, against him so uh, essentially you know andrea constant is canadian actually and now she lives in the u.s and she was a basketball player and she met him do do their both of them had associations with temple university so she um, met cosby and, and you know essentially he sexually assaulted her that's that did happen that's a fact and there was a um they Initially, the DA declined to move forward with the criminal case back in like 2004, 2005. Then Constance launched a civil case against Cosby, which was uh, found in her favor, and she got this big settlement from him. During the deposition for that civil case, basically Cosby admitted to what he did, essentially. But, uh, and that later was used in the criminal case, which occurred a few years ago, which he went to jail for. But when they appealed, his lawyers appealed to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, and basically said, Cosby admitted to those allegations back in 2004, 2005. For the purpose of the civil suit. And with the understanding that he would not be prosecuted for that. And basically the judge upheld that opinion. That's why he got released in the summer of 2001. And the craziest part about the documentary is Kamal Bell was about to finish doing the documentary, and then this happened. So he had to kind of go back to people and change topics and get some more, more experts involved. And it just kind of complicated this whole thing because the idea was, I think initially, well, these women who 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 came forward and there was this victory in the constant case, and then that was kind of – that rug was pulled out from underneath them.
1: You feel it. You feel it in this documentary – You feel how the celebration just goes, the air just goes out of everybody's collective lungs as this happens. Like I felt so, so awful for these women who really sacrificed so much in their own lives, relationships, their own mental health, abuse from like hundreds of thousands of Cosby fans, all of it to just get this story out and then to have it, you know, go in their favor. In the favor of, you know, all women and and all decency and then to have him back at home was awful. And yeah, W. Kamau Bell is, uh, he's he's right there saying, oh my, he's looking at his phone saying, oh my God, now I don't understand how I finished this documentary. Uh, it's a real, real-time moment that takes place.
0: And he talks about it. He almost quit the documentary several times. Like, it was yeah. such a difficult thing. And and it, it's funny. It brings me back to thinking about, just in terms of Kamal Bell's relationship with Cosby, it brings me back to Jerry Seinfeld. And they show a clip on this uh, of him being interviewed by Stephen Colbert. And just for a little history, Jerry Seinfeld prior to all this, thought Bill Cosby was the greatest comedian he'd ever seen. He thinks his string of albums, especially in the 70s, was the greatest string of comedy albums in any person. It's so much so that Jerry Seinfeld, comedian, which we've both watched, you told me you watch it once a year,
1: I usually watch it once a year, yeah.
0: The documentary, which is all about how you develop a set, how you, the, the, the essence of comedy, and you starting with this idea and then moving forward and just practicing and practicing, getting down perfectly. But the whole climax of the documentary, I don't know how I could watch it now, is him, he's talking with Chris Rock in, in the documentary, right? And he's saying to Chris, oh, Chris Rock is telling Seinfeld, actually, I, I heard Cosby has like two hours. He's performing right now, all
1: new. Yeah, Chris Rock is saying, Chris Rock is like, I'm funny, Jerry. I'm funny. Dude, this guy sits two and a half hours. Bam, bam, bam. Like joke after joke after joke. No intermission. Jerry's like, What? No intermission? Two and a half hours, Jerry. You got to see him. You got to see his whole sales pitch. And Jerry's like, yeah, I do got to see him. I mean, I love, of course I'm going to go see him.
0: And so, you know, that that's just how, how influential he was. So in this interview with Seinfeld and Colbert, Colbert is basically saying, you know, I, I can't watch his stuff anymore. And Seinfeld was kind of like, well, I can. I can still, I can separate the artist from the person.
1: It's actually, dude, the way I saw it was this. Stephen Colbert, as the interviewer, says to Jerry Seinfeld, can you... Can you still watch it? Can you still watch him? Yeah, I can watch it. Yeah, I can't. I actually can't. So so goes out. Right. That's, that's... Really, you can't. And he lo- it does not look well on Jerry Seinfeld in that moment for Jerry Seinfeld I go, really? You can't, as though that is the most bizarre thing imaginable. Yeah, he, he,
0: he, couldn't, he couldn't comprehend that. Now, since then, Seinfeld has, then, has, has, go. has gone on the record in further interviews saying, you know, he thought more about, he thought actually specifically about what Colbert said, and he kind of has basically reconsidered the stance. And he's like, you know, it gets to a point where you cannot not think about this and and uh you know he said the more i uh, i thought about it the more i listened to what stephen Colbert said the more he could not enjoy listen to his work the same day he did before he couldn't separate it like and so he said he uh of the wall kind of caved in that that was it and i think what Kamal Bell is trying to do in this documentary, it's actually a miracle that he did this and, and was able to pull this off. He's, his basically argument is it's not like, even though what happened is this beloved figure and we found out about all this, but that's not the way it happened. He was doing this essentially from the beginning of his career all the way through. And so there's a great um, review of the documentary on um, RogerEbert.com. And uh, and basically, they say that Kamau Bell makes it clear how evil Cosby was from the beginning. He wasn't a superstar, then a criminal. He was both at the same time. And that's the hardest thing to wrap around. But when you see, it's intricately intertwined, his, his stardom. His stardom is what allowed him access to all these women. And it's what made them second-guess themselves every single time about what happened. And so afraid to come forward. And so it's intricately linked um, and that's essentially what, what, what Kamau Bell says in the documentary.
1: Yeah. It's a great watch. You know, it's, um, it's a a discussion that many of us will have with ourselves and, and with others about, you know, separating the art from the artist. I've had that discussion about Woody Allen. I've had that discussion about R. Kelly, the R. Kelly case, another extremely, extremely fascinating, disturbing case. I got to interview a few people who were, working very hard on this case. And, you know, you have, you have R. Kelly fans, you have fans of the city of Chicago, you have fans of this, the, the, the neighborhood with R. Kelly. I mean, you have so many layers of people protecting him without him doing anything. He just has to sit back and, and, and you'll have mobs and hordes of people trying to dismantle you in every way they possibly can, uh, from physically to emotionally because you're going after their hero. And it's the exact same thing with, 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 this guy. And, and, and even, even more so I would say, because R. Kelly still didn't touch almost every corner of, uh, of, of America and the world, right? That's either it's your musical taste or you're not. Bill Cosby's really something. And I think it, it this is definitely a, a, a series to be watched and, uh, and a conversation that will always continue. But I think with, um, with Cosby, my conclusion personally was that there's no separating the two. You can watch Cosby, but you have to understand the entire time about who you're watching and what kind of person you're watching.
0: Okay, that's our show for today. Again, another bit of a heavier topic, but we just felt we couldn't ignore this topic. I mean, we talk about comedy all the time uh, on the show. And so um, let us know what you thought about the episode. I mean, the whole purpose of this is to encourage conversation. And, and again, we hope you all um, end up uh, watching the documentary. It's it's extremely well done. Before we get out of here, Ali, anything to plug? I know you're still recovering from COVID, but uh, anything you got coming up? Okay,
1: clear. Good. Okay. clear. Sometimes I'll pop a lozenge in my throat, you know, it gets a little dry, but who knows if that's COVID or what? Did you
0: know, may. by the way, I heard uh, someone say, I haven't had a Ricola in a long time. You know Ricola. Love Ricola. That you're supposed to take
1: three in a row. Stop it. That's how it works. I don't know. Read the, read the package next Listen, time. Listen, gonna, we're going to do an episode on these BS products like ChapStick, which is like you use ChapStick and you're like, hey, my lips aren't chapped. And then 15 minutes later, your lips are chapped again. And so you keep reapplying the product, not realizing that it's the ChapStick that is making your lips more dry than they ever were, ever. This is what most lozenges are. Okay, for the time that a hauls is in your throat, you don't cough and you think it works, and then you start coughing more than you were before, and then you pop more halls. Ricola is the only one, and I don't think I need to take three. I mean, I don't know, see where that's written, but Ricola is the only one that, uh, that works like a charm. It'll, it'll give you like hours, hours. I stand by Ricola. I want a Ricola sponsorship. Ricola, if you're out there. I support you. I don't know if my You know,
0: I think Ricola can sponsor your conspiracy corner at the end of every episode. (laughs) So that's perfect. But Ali, remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. And they're not medical advice. Please consult medical professionals for actual medical advice. Oh, you have Ricola right there. Can you read? Ricola! He's holding up the wrapper. Can you... do, do, Do you have the package? The whole package?
1: No. What I have is something that says original herb on it yeah i mean the whole herb because let's face
0: it i i know ricola probably works better but the herb thing really i mean i really am getting vegetables in my lozenge i want the cherry halls you know that's what people really want i know exactly so listen everyone make sure what
1: we just lost a sponsor thanks to you
0: make sure you guys uh follow us on twitter instagram dr v comedian send us an email drv comedian at gmail.com uh, give us some uh your thoughts some ideas for future programs and remember please if you could just tell one person each, uh, each of you just to just mention to one person the podcast it would really help us out that's it for today thanks for listening Thank you so much all right bye